Hello, everyone. Um, if any of you don't know me, my name is Doug. Uh, I am married to the amazing Laura. Uh, we live in St. Thomas in Exeter, which is most definitely the right side of the river. And, <laughs> uh, and we've been part of this church for about seven years. And today we're continuing our series on 1 Samuel, learning about the story of David. And if there is just one thing that you take away from the few minutes I spend uh, this evening, let it be this. That waiting is hard, but God is in the waiting. So, what's the story so far? So, the past few weeks, we've heard about the story of David. And we've heard that we first meet him as a boy, and Samuel, the judge and the prophet, comes in, and he anoints David to be the next king of Israel. And then David has this amazing experience, uh, defeating Goliath, this giant. And then he wins all of these battles, and everything is going well. Everything is coming up David. But Saul, who's the current king of Israel, he is getting jealous but he's also getting paranoid. He's absolutely convinced that no matter how faithful David is and show proves himself to be, he's going to usurp him. And so Saul actually tries to kill David on multiple occasions. And David has finally got sick of hanging around someone who's trying to kill him. And so he's, and so he's run off. And we find ourselves in a few chapters of biblical hide and seek. And in this place, as, as uh, Stu brought to us last week, um, Sometimes David gets it really wrong. He gets stuff, he really messes up. But this time, in this story, David gets it right. So let's find out how he does that. So the story starts in David and his men are hiding in the crags of the wild goats. Have you watched those nature documentaries where uh, the goats are up on the cliffs um, and the crags and, and the caves and it's the wilderness, that's where they are. Well, Get that in your mind. That's where David is. It's not a fun, super fun place to be. Nobody chooses necessarily to go there. And David is waiting. And he must be so confused. Because his life has been going so well. Everything was going really well. His promise to be king was all going well. And now he is hiding in a cave from the current king who's trying to kill him. And he must be thinking, where has God's promise gone on my life? What has happened? It almost seemed a million miles away to him. And so all he can do is wait. Uh, Tom Petty, the American uh, singer-songwriter, uh, said, uh, sung, uh, waiting is the hardest part. And life is busy, right? Life is busy and full of stuff to do. And when you have to wait, it's like, oh, why? Why do I have to wait? Like when you're stuck in traffic, right? I hate traffic. Traffic is so annoying because you're, you're literally trapped in the car. You can't go anywhere. You are, you're boxed in, and you just have to wait. And I'm a really bad one for being stuck in traffic. I love a shortcut, or better still, a long cut, where you drive around some run, random country lanes for 30 minutes rather than being sat in traffic for 30 minutes. But actually, as a culture, we're really bad at waiting. Did you know that 65% of all sales are bought on impulse? And it affects our desire not to wait, affects us and affects our lives in so many ways. So Jamie Oliver, the chef, he did an interview with Radio 4 last year. And in it, he said that in the year 2000, the average amount of time that the average Brit would spend in the kitchen every day was 40 minutes. And now it's 20 minutes. We don't want to wait for food. We want it instantly. And... Now we have our magic little bricks in our pocket. We can get everything at the click of a button. 
If we want food instantly, we can have it instantly. If we want next day delivery, we can get next day delivery. We have TikTok for the ultimate uh, instant dopamine hit and constantly. Or if you're too mature for TikTok, Instagram Reels. <laughs> and it's really affecting us. In 2015, they did a study and they found that, um, that our, our attention spans over the last, of those previous 15 years had dropped by four seconds. And that was almost 10 years ago. I wonder what they are now. And we have a society where productivity is key. Efficiency is key. We don't want to wait. But sometimes we have to wait. So back in 2022, uh, Laura and I were in the process of buying a house, which was very exciting. But if anyone here has gone through the process of buying a house, you will know that it is full of waiting. And so I, and I was really bad at waiting. I was constantly thinking, oh, when, when are the solicitors going to get back to us? Or, or when is the surveyor's report going to come back? Or, or, or when is the seller going to reply? And it was just, I was getting so stressed about it. And it's so stupid because God's, the reason we bought that house and the reason that we ended up there, like it was such a God story. God was in every single part of it. And I, every time, everyone was like, yes, yes, God's here, but oh, it's all going to fall through. It's not going to work. And I realized after we completed, after we'd moved in, I actually had to say sorry to God because he'd been so faithful to us. And I doubted him so often in those months of waiting. I wonder what you're waiting for. Maybe you know that you'd be great for a promotion, but you keep getting passed up. Maybe you know, like David, God has put a calling on your life, but right now it seems a million miles away. Maybe you just feel like you're stuck and you need God just to intervene and get going. Maybe you're waiting for healing and you know that God is going to heal you, but he hasn't yet. And so you're just waiting. Waiting is hard, but God is in the waiting. So the story goes on. So David is hiding in this cave with his friends, with his, with his men, and in comes Saul. And David must be thinking, oh my days, this is it. I am going to die. This story ends right now. But no, Saul, unbeknownst that there's anybody else in the cave, takes off his outer robe, squats down, and if anyone is confused about what the Bible means by relieve himself, he means he's doing a poo. <laughs> and this is such a ridiculous comic scene. David and his men are probably standing there, like all like, oh, what's going on? Probably holding their noses as well. And, and Saul is just down here regretting the curry he had the night before. <laughs> And if any of you have ever been on the toilet and you've heard the doorbell go, or your phone started ringing, or if you're on a public loo and you see that hand door handle move, or worse still, the door actually opens, you realize that this is quite a vulnerable position to be in. And David's men realize this too. And they go, look, David, Saul has been given into your hands. This is the moment. You can take it. And David has this choice. And actually, from outside looking in, why shouldn't he kill, kill Saul in this moment? Because David is a popular guy. 
He's popular with the army. Saul's army are outside, but if David walks out holding Saul's head, David is a champion. David killed Goliath. David has conquered thousands. The army's probably just going to go, yep, David, you're the king. That was great. The people are on his side. They love David. They think he's amazing. The priests and the, and the, and the people of, 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 of the law, they love David too. They, they know that Samuel has anointed David to be the next king. And on top of that, Saul is nuts. He's a paranoid lunatic who keeps chasing around this guy who, has nothing, who doesn't want to harm him. Every, he's a bad king. From the outside looking in, there is every reason that David should kill Saul in this moment. But he doesn't. And I wonder what would have happened if he did. It's actually a bit like Winston Churchill. You see, Winston Churchill, probably Britain's most famous prime minister, the the British prime minister during the Second World War. Um, But did you know that Winston Churchill almost became prime minister before? Back in 1915, uh, Winston Churchill was first Lord of the Admiralty. That means head of Britain's naval forces. Prior to that, he was Home Secretary, both very high up positions in government. If, if he'd stayed on in government, and after Asquith resigned in 1916, Churchill would have been an amazing candidate, a very likely candidate, to take over and become PM. But Churchill also championed the Gallipoli campaign, which was a complete disaster. And he got sacked as a minister, and he actually ended up on the Western Front fighting. But I wonder what would have happened if, if he had become prime minister then. Maybe he wouldn't have led in World War II. Maybe his, he would have done his time and he wouldn't have been, been there for it. Maybe the outcome of World War II would have been different because of it. We never know. As my, my dad likes to say, you can't go down the other trouser leg of time. <laughs> but the thing is that actually, I think Churchill's time on the Western Front and his time in and out of government prior to 1940, I think that shaped him. Maybe it did. Maybe it shaped him into exactly the person that Britain needed in May 1940. And David, David has the same choice. Because I wonder in the same way, if David had, had killed Saul, would we still remember him as one after God's own heart? Or would we remember him as just another king who killed another king to become king? What would our memory of David be? What would the things that stick in our mind when we think of David be? But David doesn't. He chooses to hold on to righteousness. I think in his mind, he's, the law is going through him, and he knows, thou shall not murder. As he says himself in, in verse 13, what he was thinking, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And as David would later write in Psalm 34, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. David holds on to righteousness. He's not going to take the easy way out, but that means he's choosing to wait. So he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and he lets the king live. David is, is, not, is not choosing not to compromise, to not take the easy way out. And he's choosing to wait. A few years ago, one of my friends was really struggling with anxiety and depression. 
and, um, and they were having lots of panic attacks. And I was trying to be a good friend, and I was trying to support them through this. Uh, but it was really hard, and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Completely uh, useless. Because I thought what they needed was to get a grip. I thought they, what they needed was to just snap out of it. Come on, like, you, you, can just, you can just pull yourself together. And I remember feeling completely helpless in those moments with my friend and just thinking, what do I do? And I remember calling out to God, God, do something. And in fairness, it's one of the few times in my life that I have, well, one of many times, but a time in my life where I have clearly heard God's voice. And you know what he said? He said, love is patient. Every time. Every time I'm like, come on, God, do something, intervene. The same thing. Love is patient. Waiting is hard. We know what that's like. And in this story, David is really feeling it right now. But he knows something else, that God is in the waiting. So the story continues. Saul finishes and gets out of the cave, and David follows him, and he tells him, look, I had this amazing opportunity to kill you, and I didn't. I'm innocent. Stop trying to kill me. And Saul goes, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I should never have tried to kill you. But David is not buying it. He's, he's, his trust in Saul is completely gone, and he's, he's not going to go back with him. Saul goes off home. David goes off to his stronghold, a, a safer place to be with his men. And he keeps on waiting. And are you waiting for, for that promise over his life to happen? And it's still not here yet. But why? Why does God make David wait? Well, there, um, why does God make any of us wait? Well, there are a couple of things. One reason might be that some heavenly discipline is being formed in you. Like patience. That, that, that thing that God was telling me in those, in those times, that comes from a, a, a poem that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians of, and how he describes love. And of all the words he could have used to start his description of love, he chooses patience as the first one. And patience, scientifically, is actually really good for us. Practicing patience can re-engage frontal lobe functions, meaning that you're less likely to act reckless and make poor decisions. It can help with anxiety and depression. It can calm your mind and make you feel more gratitude, more connection to mankind and the universe, a greater sense of abundance. It can even improve your health. Patient people are less likely to report health problems, from ulcers to headaches and even pneumonia. But waiting can also produce other heavenly disciplines, like self-control. Resilience and perseverance. And most importantly, you can deepen your trust in God. Sometimes the waiting and the reason for waiting only becomes obvious when you look back. I've been rereading the Narnia books recently by C.S. Lewis, and I've been absolutely loving, loving it. Um, and in The Horse and His Boy, uh, which is the third book, a boy, Shasta, who grows up in a country which isn't Narnia, and um, he doesn't know Aslan, he, he makes his way to Aslan with a horse. And it's only at the end of the story that he meets Aslan. And Aslan tells him, actually, I've been there all along. Aslan says this. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear of that last mile should, you, should reach King Loon in time. I was the lion that you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, 
so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. But sometimes we wait and we never find out why. The book of Job in the Bible is probably the oldest story in the whole Bible. And it answers that fundamental human question of if God is good, then why is there suffering? And at the end of Job's trials and the suffering that goes in his life, he never finds out. God doesn't tell him why he had to go through all that suffering. He just shows him the glory of creation. And in the same way, actually, in this story with David, we never find out why he has to wait so long. At the end of the story, God doesn't pop in and go, good job, David. You have learned the heavenly discipline of patience, and you will become king on this day at this time. Nope. Nowhere in the books of Samuel, nowhere in the Psalms, nowhere in the Bible does it say why David had to wait so long. It just does. And so David goes on waiting. But interestingly, there's somebody else in this story who's waiting too. The author. You see, the author, the book of 1 Samuel, was written, along with most of the books of the Old Testament, was written during the Jewish exile in Babylon. And so the author is compiling all the old stories of the ancient oral tradition and and putting them together, but all the while thinking, how did we waste God's promise in Jerusalem? How are the walls now crumbled? How did we waste all the goodness that God gave us and find ourselves here? He would have also known the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that God one day would bring the, the Israelites back to the, back to the promised land. But he was just waiting for that. On top of that, he would have known the prophecies of Daniel, that one like a son of man is going to come and he's going to make the world right again. And he would have known the prophecies of Isaiah, that, that, that a descendant of David, one like David, in fact, is going to be that Messiah. He's going to be the one that makes the whole world right again. And so the author is compiling this story, all under this understanding that he too is waiting, waiting for the day of the Lord to come. When the day of the Lord does come, it's full of waiting and obedience. We move from our rocky crags where the wild goats are to a garden, a garden in Gethsemane. And Jesus is there praying, and he's waiting. He is waiting for the worst day of his life to begin. He is waiting for his friends to abandon him, to to deny they ever met him. He is waiting for an evening of, of ridicule, of being mocked and having lies said over him. He's in for an evening of being beaten and tortured and executed. He's in for an evening where the infinite God is going to become severed. He's going to be severed from the Father. And he, and, he, and he waits. And he's obedient because just like David in that cave, who, who, who held on to righteousness and held on to goodness, Jesus prays, your will be done. And it's in this moment that if you, this evening you are really feeling like, I can't wait anymore. I'm going to take the easy way out. And, and I know God might have said something long ago, but it is far gone. If you're, if you're barely holding on, then hold on to this moment. Because this at the cross is the moment 
that God's love is so abundant and so powerful and so true. Because on, on this moment, no matter what else is going on in your life, no matter what has happened or what is going to happen, you can rest assured in the knowledge that Jesus died for you out of love. Pure love for you is why he died. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what are we waiting for? Maybe it's a family situation or a friendship situation that just won't heal. Maybe you feel stuck in a cycle of sin and you're just waiting for God to deliver you from it. Maybe you feel like your current direction is all wrong and you want God to, to change it. Though it's hard, in a minute I'm going to invite us all to, to say that the dangerous prayers that David and Jesus say, your will be done. And I say it's a dangerous prayer because what you're saying is in front of easy way outs and compromises and all maybe the obvious reasons that I should give up, I'm going to hold on to truth. I'm going to hold on to the one who died for me against all of this. And that's hard because that can mean so many things because that can mean that you might have to leave your home. You might have to find yourself in the rocky crags. It might, mean, it might even mean you find yourself being put to death. But against all of that, you pray, your will be done. Waiting is hard, but God is in the waiting. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and play some music in the background. And while they come up, I'm going to invite everyone else to stand. Stand if you are able. At the end of the last gathering, this verse was uh, said to me, and I thought it was just perfect, so I'm going to read it out over you. But those who wait in the Lord will find their strength renewed. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know what's going on in your life that you find yourself waiting, but I'm pretty sure we're all waiting on something. And what I'm going to ask you to do is pop your hand over your heart. And maybe close your eyes if you find it's easier to concentrate. And I want you to picture what you're waiting on. Where are you waiting on God to do something? And in that space, in that moment, pray, your will be done. And we're going to spend some time now just waiting. As the band play, we're just going to wait. We're going to wait on the Holy Spirit who's here and is with us. And we're going to wait.